the irony is that uh, third world cultures are cultures that are not grounded in a sacred order. They're not grounded in anything transcendent because they deny the existence of anything transcendent. First and second world cultures on uh, the opposite end of the spectrum do uh, embrace uh, a transcendent um, uh, for second world. That would be Christianity for first world would be more pagan, but there's some kind of sacred order there in which their morality is grounded. And so they live by some kind of divine revelation. And that's certainly how Christians live in the third world culture, though you delete the sacred order. And what we're seeing is that when you delete the sacred order, the only thing that can follow is social disorder. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Vast Podcast. I am here. This is Jake with my esteemed co-host, the one and only David Campbell. And we also have off-camera our good friend, Michael Whittle. Hello. What's up, David? How are you? Uh, good, thank you. It's good to have you back with us. Hope you had a good week. Um, we just put out an episode on Jordan Peterson. That was a good conversation. Mm, good man. I, I enjoyed that. If you guys haven't checked out our last episode and Jordan Peterson's message to the Christian churches, then I encourage you to do so. It was a fun combo. Uh, today, we're talking uh, about a very safe topic, um, one that's not likely at all to get us any pushback from people. Uh, two men, three men talking about abortion. That's right. Here we go. How dare we? <laughs> it's been... I think three or four weeks since Roe v. Wade was overturned um, and the legislation of abortion was handed back to the individual states in the USA. Um, and uh, I don't feel like I see too much about it on social media in, in I guess, in the last like week or two, um, but certainly it's still something on people's minds. It's a very hot topic in our day. Um, and we have certainly some very clear views on uh, morality surrounding um, the pro-choice and the pro-life debate. Uh, we, I guess, spoiler alert, believe that the life inside the womb is absolutely sacred, bears the image of God, and should be protected. So let's dive into this conversation on abortion, David. Um, I've got a few kind of things to lob out there for you to take a swing at, but do you have any opening thoughts? I'll let you lead the conversation. Okay, cool. Um, I think the best place to start to help us frame it up is to uh, talk about what I guess in the modern day would be called personhood theory, um, which is the idea that just because somebody is a human doesn't mean that they're a person. And this is kind of the philosophical underpinning for uh, the intellectually honest pro-choice argument. Um, and what I mean by that is that there are people out there who say, absolutely, this baby is a human being, um, but by their definition, they are not yet a person. Um, and therefore, they feel okay about uh, killing the child. Um, obviously, we think that that's morally reprehensible. However, these ideas are not new. They're kind of rehashed postmodern versions of ancient ideas. And I know that you have quite an extensive knowledge about uh, some of the Greek philosophical thought that was around in the time of the first century church and how they even had to deal with uh, 
first of all, kind of the underpinnings of Gnosticism and then full-blown Gnosticism um, and how that rubbed up against the Christian faith. I thought maybe that would be a good place to start because it just helps us understand why we believe what we believe um, and why we think people should consider an alternative view uh, if they are in favor of abortion. Yeah, well, it's it, it is interesting that, um, you know, infanticide was very common in the Roman Empire, killing of newborn infants. And uh, I'm sure if they had the wherewithal to have had an abortion industry, they would have had one. Uh, and uh, um, it was the, the church, the early church, the early Christians that uh, took a stand against that. They used to, to go and pick up the babies that were, you know, put out to die. We're, we're coming full circle. A very good friend of ours in Indianapolis uh, has a ministry where she does exactly that and has instituted these drop boxes in fire stations in the state of Indiana and a, a number of babies' lives have been saved. Um, she also uh, uh, buries babies that have, that have been abandoned and died. It just seems to me that we're going back to um, uh, pre-Christian uh, paganism and in so many ways. And I, I do think, I do think that, um, uh, you know, the, the thought world, the, the philosoph philosophical thinking, whatever that is, was behind the ancient world has, has crept back in again. Um, and, uh, uh, I've, I've written, you know, a number of things about this. Um, it's a fatalistic mindset. It's a mindset that um, uh, human life is expendable, uh, that, uh, you know, we, we live at the mercy of the gods. That was what the Romans and Greeks believed. And they played around with us. And when they were finished with us, they dispensed with us. And um, so human life wasn't really valued because of the fatalistic mindset, uh, whereas Christianity breaks in with the biblical worldview, which is that we're made in the image of a personal creator God and that we have inherent worth and value, each of us, um, because of that. Uh, but where a biblical mentality begins to recede uh, there's no such thing as a vacuum, uh, and something else comes in and fills it. And what comes in and fills it, it was is simply what was there before, and uh, and so you can see this in all sorts of of, of ways. Um, the uh, the Greek world, uh, because the Romans held the political power, but they generated all the ideas, and uh, the Greek world. Um, had a uh, big division between uh, mind and body, uh, and they ex exalted uh, philosophical speculation, uh, and uh, the the world of the mind was considered the the world of value, um, and insofar as the Greeks believed in any kind of immortality, because a lot of them didn't. Uh, but insofar as they did, um, the idea of the resurrection of the body would have been completely reprehensible to them. They believed in the eternal existence of this mind or the soul. 
Uh, and so what, uh, one of the consequences of that was it really didn't matter what you did with your body. It was inconsequential. Um, so, you know, you could be uh, like, for instance, Socrates, Plato, and, and many of those uh, men who, you know, held, were held in reverence, uh, at least in some circles in ancient Greece, they were the great thinkers. Um, but they, they practiced uh, pedophilia uh, at the same time. And it's quite open. You can, you can read the dialogues of Plato. It's right there in the, in the dialogues. And it, they didn't seem to have any problem with that. So their personal moral conduct was catastrophic. Um, but, but it didn't seem to matter to them because it was the exalted sort of uh, thoughts that they were thinking um, you know, the philosophical thoughts they were thinking, uh, which that, that was the only thing that mattered to them. And I do think there's, there's something of that today in that, um, you know, we're caught up in all sorts of uh, philosophizing uh, and, and you can look at uh, critical theory and how that is developed. Um, but the, uh, you know, the, the, at the same time, alongside it, um, there's no idea of a personal creator God, and therefore uh, people made in the image of God, that, that's not there. And so therefore it becomes, uh, it boils down to, you know, might versus right. Who, who, is, who is, you know, the people with the greatest intellectual power that are setting the trends in society are going to dictate whose life has value and whose life doesn't. And for a number of reasons, uh, those powers that be have dictated that the life of an unborn child is worthless, uh, right up to and including birth. It's so we're right back to where the Romans were. Mm -hmm. It's horrifying. I was and reading. Even, yeah, sorry. I was going to say even uh, post-birth. I believe it's Peter Singer that uh, makes a a case. Um, from his worldview for infanticide in some instances. Uh, well, the and child it, is indeed oh, a burden to the parents. It goes along with euthanasia, kill the elderly off. Mm -hmm. And that's permissible in Holland. Uh, and uh, and uh, they were one of the pioneer countries in that. And now you've got cases of uh, people who, you know, are basically killing their aged relatives off because they want the money. Uh, you know, the, it, it's not that they're terminally ill or whatever. Or suffering, it's just they maybe got Alzheimer's, or they're just ninety years old, and um, you know uh, uh, they want rid of them because they want the estate. So it's, it's it, that, that two-tier view of humanity, right? So no denying biologically that we are all human beings. The question is, when do we become, and when do we cease to be persons that are uh, valuable enough to protect? Um, and we, it's, and the whole plan, experts in a woman called Margaret Sanger, mm -hmm. was influenced by the Nazis. Mm -hmm. Try to desperately to cover that up. Planned Parenthood does, but it's it's true. She she believed in killing off, um, you know, developmentally handicapped people, Down syndrome, that sort of thing. Uh, really, the same way that the Nazis did. Uh, eugenics is mm -hmm. the technical term for it. Hitler wanted to develop a master race, you know, that people were all physically perfect and according to a certain style. And Margaret Sanger was right in the very same movement. And that was the uh, beginning of the modern abortion movement.
Yeah, I mean, as I'm listening to you talk, it, it doesn't even require some kind of postmodern philosophical gymnastics to justify uh, abortion or you know other kinds of activities that we're describing. I'm just reminded of Psalm 14:1 that says, "The fool says in his heart, there is no God." Um, and then what follows in the rest of that verse is essentially, you know, we, we commit moral evils as a result of saying that there is no God. Uh, Carl Truman talks about a, a man named Philip Reef who has this whole concept of first, second, and third world cultures, um, which is one of the things that I saw posted on uh, Instagram. I can't remember who, uh, but they had, you know, this person was not pleased with the overturning of Roe v. Wade and had said America is turning into a third world country. Uh, the irony is that uh, third world cultures are cultures that are not grounded in a sacred order. They're not grounded in anything transcendent because they deny the existence of anything transcendent. First and second world cultures on uh, the opposite end of the spectrum do uh, embrace uh, a transcendent um, uh, for second world. That would be Christianity for first world would be more pagan, but there's some kind of sacred order there in which their morality is grounded. And so they live by some kind of divine revelation. And that's certainly how Christians live in the third world culture, though, you delete the sacred order. And what we're seeing is that when you delete the sacred order, the only thing that can follow is social disorder. Uh, and society begins to fall apart because now society has to justify itself by itself. It has nothing transcendent or sacred to point to um, by which it understands things like right and wrong, morally evil versus morally acceptable. Um, and that that doesn't, again, that doesn't take some kind of postmodern philosophy that just like that, that comes from a purely naturalistic worldview that we, there is no personal creator God, that we are all nothing but uh, and atoms that have come together by chance and have formed life um, and therefore we're just kind of making morality up as we go. And so when you have that worldview, you can come to all kinds of conclusions about, uh, whether or not life inside of the womb is, is worth protecting because we have but, a transcendent worldview. We believe that it is. Yeah. And, and inevitably without God, it comes down to might versus right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so it's, uh, the, uh, the president Reagan famously said, uh, I've noticed that all the people in favor of abortion have already been born. Mm -hmm. uh, and he had a way of putting profound truth in a way that everybody got. Uh, but that that's it, you see, that once you've got the power, you can dictate what happens to the people that haven't got the power. It's might versus right. And so if you don't have a transcendent value system um, that says we're, we have to protect the weakest in society, then human nature being what it is, uh, everyone will fend for their own interests. And uh, inevitably what happens in society is that a more influential group rises to the top. And so, you know, most cultures, the power is concentrated in the people who have intellectual ability or, um, you know, and or money and, and the money's often you know, um, that it's the people with ability that have the money. And so we talk about the 1%, you know, maybe a bit of an exaggeration, but most cultures, uh, the, the majority of wealth and power is controlled by a relatively small number of people. Mm -hmm. So when you take a Christian basis away, that becomes a very frightening place to be because 
those people can decide on their own behalf what happens to everybody else. And uh, that's part of the abortion thing that, um, you know, people don't connect the dots. They say, well, you know, it's what's convenient for us. And uh, but they don't turn around and realize that, you know, they're also complaining about the one percent that are controlling society. Well, you're just doing the same thing. You've got the power and you're making the decision. You're calling the shots. Somebody else is going to die and you're going to live because it suits you that you that you are not put through the, you know, uh, inconvenience of pregnancy. Uh, you'd rather have the baby die. And that's basically the decisions that are being made. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I don't care how you, you know, sugarcoat it. I mean, you can, uh, there are specialized situations. We, we had a friend, uh, friends who were in, a, in an absolutely heartbreaking situation where they had a baby with congenital uh, difficulties, uh, which were so enormous that the baby had zero chance of survival uh, and was probably, you know, didn't have any cognitive ability and the mother would have died in childbirth. And mm-hmm. so they went through with an abortion, uh, and it was one, obviously it was probably the, the, the worst trauma they ever gone through, but mm-hmm. that, that is sort of held up as, well, that's the reason we believe in abortion. Mm-hmm. But if, if it, if it were truly, then the number of abortions would would reduce to about one ten thousandth or hundred thousandth mm-hmm. of the number because that's the truly the number where the mother's health is in danger. Exactly. Yeah. And and you're right in saying that our culture is pointing to uh the the most rare of cases to try to justify a really uh broadly reaching legislation for what they deem acceptable in terms of what when abortion should be allowed um and, and what puzzles me about the critical theory people is the whole gist of critical theory is that you've got oppressed people and you've got to transfer the you've got to have a power inversion you've got to give the power to the oppressed people so um you know uh black people have to have power uh, restored and they should have a power advantage over white people or, um, uh, LGBT, uh, the LGBTQ. But even within that, a trans person should have power over a gay or lesbian person. And someone who's disabled and trans has power over non-disabled and trans. Someone who is fat, disabled, obese, disabled and trans has ultimate power. It's absolutely ridiculous, but that's how it works. But never do the the most offensive of all people, the unborn, they don't even enter into it. Mm-hmm. Zero. They don't I enter the system. I, I think it has something to do with, uh, honestly, kind of the basic tenets of liberalism. Um, right. And I don't necessarily have like any better ideas than li- living in a liberal society because I, I like so much of you know, what comes along with living in a liberal society, except to say that, it, you know, probably part of the reason that I like it is that it plays into my selfish human tendencies. But one of the basic tenets of liberalism is that uh, we don't have to submit to authority to which we have not, or to which the majority has not consented. And so when uh, you factor that notion into abortion, all of a sudden there's this child in me that is 
you know, so to speak, exercising authority over me. And I, I don't want to submit to that. This is inconvenient for me. Um, maybe in, in, uh, very rare instances, it's detrimental to the mother's health. But if we're being honest, most of the time, such a vast, vast, vast majority of the time, we abort the child child because it's it doesn't fit with my life plan. Um, and uh, I just think that's that's an extension of the liberal society that we live in, the waters that we swim in. Um, and again, I don't really have... Uh, any better ideas for how government should run, except to say, and this is where I want to transition us into the last part of our conversation, except to say that the only hope of a thriving liberal order is to be grounded in God, is to come back to the sacred, to come back to the transcendent, to to not shy away from building a Christian society, uh, to to try to point people to God as much as possible, obviously with the understanding that not everybody um, will will follow Jesus. But I think Christians not shying away from our responsibility, I suppose I would call it, to uh, evangelize as much as possible. And this tracks back to what we were talking about last week. You said something that I've been thinking about quite a lot um, in regards to the Christian responsibility to build society. And I can see your perspective, and I think I share a lot of your perspective. And at the same time, I have a bit of a tension. What you had said is that Christians are not called to build society, um, but rather to be an alternative society as the church, uh, a city on a hill, a light in the world kind of thing. Um, And I think where I'm like really stuck right now is to what extent do we abdicate uh, any responsibility to build the society because as far as I can see, when we do abdicate ourselves from that responsibility, society tends to self-destruct. Yeah, I'm not saying that we should retreat from the world uh, into a form of pietism. I'm, that's not what I'm saying, Jay. What I'm, what I'm saying is that uh, there's a school of thinking uh, uh, called theonomy within reform circles. It's not reflective of reform circles generally, but there's a school of thinking uh, and it and it, re- it appears in other Christian circles as well, moral majority, that sort of thing. Um, you know, we need to take over. And uh, that's not what we're called to do. However, we are called to be salt and light. And I think the, the litmus test is when preachers cross over into the political realm and try to um, declare divine law, you know, in society as much as in church, I think what we need to do as Christian leaders is to get behind um, people who are not Christian leaders, who are not pastors and so on, uh, but who feel called to be in the political realm. And they're not trying to um, cause the church to take over society. They're trying to infiltrate society with with biblical values. And I do think that there are a lot of people out there that uh, are not Christians and, you know, have departed from a lot of the biblical mindset, but they still have shreds of it there. They still believe that, you know, we're made in the image of God. They still understand um, the idea that life is sacred, at least to some extent, which is why when you look at opinion polls, and of course, opinion polls depends, you know, you can slant the question to get a certain answer. 
certainly what the left-wing people do, and they come out and say everybody's outraged that Roe v. Wade was overturned. But when you dig down and look at, at the opinion, actually um, only a very small percentage of people believe in late-term abortion. Um, the the uh, m- majority of people you know, will allow for abortion in the very early weeks of pregnancy. And that's, and actually my understanding, I think, is it's certainly North America that once you get beyond about 15 weeks, that people become opposed to abortion. I think there's been actually, this has been a fruit, speaking of the salt and light, this has been a fruit of the right to life and pro-life movement, which has been going on for 50 years, um, uh, ever since, you know, those, abortion developments, you know, 50 years ago, not only in the United States, but in other countries, it's about the same time. But the, the pro-life movement has campaigned and been salt and light within society. And it's been helped by modern technology with, you know, people can see the baby in the womb and everybody knows that, you know, that's been pregnant through a pregnancy. And I think there's been a mind shift, quite a substantial mind shift in society from the 1970s and 80s until now. Uh, in favor of the the sanctity of life. Um, And I think that's why you're not seeing, like you said, oh, it's been three or four weeks. It hasn't. It's actually been six or seven weeks, I think, since Roe v. Wade. You see, what you're picking up is that it's fading. It's, um, you know, you haven't got to, you're losing track of the, even of the time frame because it isn't actually front row center in the news and social media the way that the abortion activists wanted it to be. And it is, and there's been commentary. And the reason is because actually a lot of people, that people are not attracted by the extreme left argument. They're just not, they're repelled by that. That's been and that put, put forward. Um, you know, people are in the middle and, and we gained a lot of ground. And I think there are other that we can gain ground as well in in society. So I'm not yeah. saying I'm just saying stay out of politics never ever works. Yeah, it's. I think we need to continue that thread of conversation in future episodes because the difference is still not abundantly clear to me. Um, did you say people or preachers? Preachers. Oh yes. Okay, got it. Well, I, people like you. Yeah. And- uh, and that's where we get into this ca- catastrophe of the so-called Trump prophets. Yes, absolutely. You I'm get... with you there 100%. Yeah. The, a part of the issue is that uh, everything is so politicized that uh, it becomes hard to even speak about an issue without people saying that you're being political when in fact well, you are not. You know, like a, a, a lot of preachers cross the line. And uh, in, in Canada where it's not quite so bad, and the reason is because uh, you can have your charitable status pulled if you advocate any political position whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's that's correct. I agree with that. Uh, like from the pulpit. Um, so the church is a charitable organization and is not a political advocacy advocacy group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 so um, I think we just need to draw some lines there, uh, really, because get behind if you've got. Christians, men and women in your congregation that feel called into the political realm, that's fine. They're not representing the church. Mm-hmm. They're representing themselves. They're representing their political party mm-hmm. and the value they hold. But Except where- 
Except to say, though, who gets to decide what is and what isn't political? Because uh, I've sent you sermons of mine where I've spoken on issues like abortion or transgenderism that you have applauded. So is that being political or is that just talking to an issue? No, you're not endorsing a political party. I see. So what what you mean specifically is just the endorsement of a party. You you keep any political party out of it. Yes, I, I, ag- I agree with that, especially because the political party does not belong to the Lord. And so they are they are prone to shift in their views on things. And then preachers are now in the awkward position of having backed something that was never intent on being holy. Uh, it was just a convenient vessel to get a, you know, to some kind of legislation passed. Now, I think part of being in politics is that you have to kind of like uh, – uh, go along to get along kind of thing. Like you have to find yourself, if you are going to be a politician, are you going to sit with this camp or that camp um, in right. order to politics get things done? But that's different art. from preachers in a pulpit. And politics is the art of compromise. And that's yeah. where we have to get behind, uh, you know, Christians who are in politics, um, a little, maybe a little bit more. We have to understand the predicament that they're in, that, um, you know, you're, you, you I mean, we can be clear cut and every, right and wrong and, and so what's right, what's wrong and so on as far as church government is concerned. But Christians who are out there in the political realm, they may, they may see it as a victory to reduce, you know, let's say there's a, a scenario where there's no abortion limit. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they're working. They, they would like to have no abortions at all, but that's not mm-hmm. practical. Mm-hmm. The, you know, to get enough support in a legislator legislature, uh, you might have to compromise at a, a 15 week or a 12 week limit or something. And so we need to get behind people like that and say, that's an improvement. Mm-hmm. They're working with what's possible. They're working with people who aren't Christians out there who have a variety of different viewpoints. And, uh, you know, we have to be, you know, we, we can't demand of Christians in politics that they try, this is, goes back to what I said before, that we can't demand that they try to create the government of God and the government of the church in the mm-hmm. political realm, because you can't institute God's government over mm-hmm. the unsaved. Mm-hmm. You just can't yes. do it. I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I certainly agree. Um, and I think to think otherwise would be a fool's errand, because it's, it's just, it's not possible Uh because you then would have to say, well, everybody would have to become a follower of Jesus to think like we think. And that's just not what the Bible puts forward in terms of how this is all going to pan out. Now, in saying that, I, I agree, celebrating the incremental wins is is good. And I think all the Christian is saying, just to kind of exit the political part of this conversation and, and wrap it up, what the Christian is saying is, hey, if you agree that some limit is uh, good, all the Christian is doing is using the exact same logic to protect the child all the way back to the moment of that child's inception, because there's nothing that changes between day one and week 15 biologically. Obviously they're, the child is growing. They're going through stages of development, but they are a human and a person the whole way through. And so Christians are just being consistent and so our appeal to people, if you think that some kind of limit is good, um, to apply that same logic all the way down to the beginning. Can I jump in with a question here? Yeah. So um, can you hear me okay, David? Yes, sir. Um, 
So we posted a few weeks ago a just a call for questions on our Instagram, and this one came up in different forms, probably, I think it was like four or five times. So I just want to read this question to you guys. And I, this was the first time I had heard of this, but it, it must have been part of the conversation that was going around mm-hmm. when Roe v. Wade was overturned. And I just want to hear you guys' thoughts and perspectives. So, and this is a person who is a regular listener. Um, asking this question. I have recently had my view challenged that it is at the moment of conception that a human life is created. I recently learned about the view held in Jewish tradition that the embryo is considered to be mere water until the fourth day. And then he says from the Talmud, as though it's but a limb of the woman who bears it. It seems like in Jewish tradition that the full human status is not given until birth. How should we weigh the Jewish belief with our own? Am I not seeing the full picture? Well, I, I mean, we don't take our authority off of the Talmud to begin with. Um, it sounds like the past, and of course, well, you have to understand with, within rabbinic theology, there's a multitude of opinions. So you can quote some rabbi uh, and, uh, you know, some second century, let's say, rabbi, but there'll be somebody that has a different opinion. Uh you know, so you can't just say that's Jewish theology because it isn't. Um, that's an opinion that some rabbi held somewhere uh, that's recorded in the Talmud. So, um, okay. and by the sound of it, it the the whatever the tradition. The, I mean, the Jews also had a tradition that the spirit doesn't depart until three days after death. It hovers near the body, mm-hmm. which is why. Um, the resurrection was on the third day. God delayed it. It's why Jesus delayed going to Lazarus uh, until at least the three days had passed mm-hmm. because he didn't want anyone to think it was anything less than a full resurrection. That's not, Jesus wasn't endorsing that belief. Mm-hmm. He was just acknowledging the fact that, that a lot of people did believe that. Mm-hmm. But that's a Jewish tradition. That's not, we don't believe that. You know, when you die, you die. Your spirit goes to be with the Lord immediately. Um, and so neither should we accept or put, put any weight on. If they had a tradition that, you know, the uh, embryo doesn't become a fetus until the third day or fourth day or whatever the rabbi that you, you this person is quoting said, well, that's fine. That's what that he, he believed. Um, it doesn't affect, uh, you know, that there's nothing in the Bible to support that. And I don't see why I should believe it any more than I, than I should believe, you know, that my soul hangs around for three days trying to get back into my body just because somebody in Jewish theology, um, believed it. It's also an unscientific view as well. Well, it it is. (laughs) So, you know, um, uh, I, I think, what is the Talmud, David? Well, it's a body of rabbinic literature, um, extensive body of rabbinic literature. It's been gathered together. And, uh, you know, there, there were different schools of thinking. This is post-destruction um, of the temple mm-hmm. uh, in 70 AD. So it's after the inception of Christianity, obviously. Um so, but but there's there there were different uh, that it was gathered together. So there's different schools of thinking within 
There was the school of Shammai, the school of Hillel. They were mm-hmm. the, some were more liberal in terms of uh, the law. Some were more restrictive in terms of the keeping of the law. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of different Jewish authorities, and the, and there's uh, there's an abundance of literature that that Orthodox Jews, not so much liberal Jews, but Orthodox Jews, very conservative Jews, spend all their time studying that literature today as much as they would study the Bible. Mm-hmm. So it's separate to a uh, Christian's... Um... Well, it's got nothing to do with Christianity at right. all. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to have that pointed out. Yeah, well, that was going to be my question, is I think that went... I, and I know what this person's talking about. There was a rabbi, I think, from... New York City or Washington DC that did like a viral tweet thread saying this is um I'm a rabbi yep. this is what Jews believe regarding right. conception and birth and abortion and it kind of like really made the rounds and so I think people just read it and took it as right um oh this is what this rabbi is saying so this is what the Jewish tradition would believe and David it sounds like what you're saying is not oh, only does that not oh. matter <laughs> it's also not necessarily what Jewish tradition believes. Well, right? no, and 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 within Judaism, there's vast, vast spectrum of belief and practice. Liberal Judaism is similar to liberal Protestantism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, very secularized. Mm-hmm. Whereas the ultra orthodox uh, are, uh, you know, are the the people that um, are are like the Jewish Amish, really. I mean. They're separate from society and live a, a whole different world. Mm-hmm. And in between, there's a spectrum. And the the views on abortion would would run the gamut, I'm sure, from uh, absolute agreement with what we believe to absolute agreement with what you know Nancy Pelosi, for instance, would would mm-hmm. agree. So. Uh, politically i mean would would run the gamut from one to the other so there's no such thing as a jewish position mm-hmm. on abortion that's absurd mm-hmm. yeah isn't judaism by uh isn't judaism kind of inherently different from christianity obviously in a lot of ways but in one way that it's less concerned with consensus than christianity is Christianity has a strong impulse for arriving at the truth. Well, no, no, no. I think that I think that a conservative and orthodox Judaism they're they're very particular about arriving at the truth. Uh, I mean, my brother was the personal lawyer to the richest man in Canada, who was an orthodox Jew, and uh, they were. I mean, but he also was a rabbinic scholar. I mean, he spent all of his spare time studying Hebrew texts and was mm-hmm. highly learned um, and and would interpret the Old Testament via, you know, the teaching of the rabbis. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, they were very, very, very particular uh, and also quite, quite tended to be quite legalistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can, I mean, if you go into a Jewish hospital, there'll be a Sabbath elevator, I can guarantee I won't go into the details of that, but I mean, you know, um, so, uh, but all I'm saying is that within Judaism, there is a vast spectrum of opinion, the same as there is within what, you know, we would call the Christian church, although we would say that a lot of the far end of the Christian church isn't even Christian at all. And the, the Orthodox and conservative Jews would almost say the same thing about Judaism. The only thing is that, that, that they're ethnic, 
you know, even if you're very liberal, you're still ethnically a Jew. And so their idea of community is different from ours in that it is racially and ethnically based so that, you know, you could believe all the wrong things, but you're still part of the community. Mm -hmm. Did the Jews ever have like, so obviously Christianity is, a uh, has councils that dot our history to arrive at what we agree upon as true about our faith. Has anything like that ever existed within Judaism? Oh yeah, there there was uh, yeah, and in, in very ancient times, there was Council of Jamnia, for instance, in the mm. second century, um, and uh, the the Jews tend to congregate around particular rabbis that they follow, and that's mm-hmm. true present day. Mm. There'll be um, and and uh, within a school of thought a rabbi will pass his mantle down to his successor. Um, and that's been very true within the Orthodox. That's circle. interesting. Yeah. It's almost like you could say that they're prone to gather around the, the, the interpreter. And I think the ideal of Christianity is that we want to gather around the text. And yes, because, because Jesus is our rabbi. Right. He is you the know, rabbi. Well, the, the, and he that, is the living word. Yeah, yeah, he is, and and that the presence of of Christ and what we believe about Christ uh, automatically subordinates uh, every human, or should subordinate every human um, representative of Christ. Great, uh, you know, uh, I mean, it, in practice, it doesn't sometimes, you know, as as with the Pope and so on, who's currently visiting Canada, by the way, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, maybe he'll run with Jordan Peterson, who knows? Uh, uh, in any event, uh, but the Jews don't have that because the the Messiah hasn't come yet, you know. Uh, exactly. so that messianic figure. So, so some of these rabbis take on very mystical qualities and mm-hmm. and um, you know are venerated uh, in a way that you know shouldn't happen within the Christian Church. Mm-hmm. Okay. We've gone on a real sideline. That's what podcasts are for. Well, that's that's that vo- the voice that interrupted us, Jake. <laughs> that voice from afar. They call me the they call me the voice of the people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we've said adequately, uh, spoken adequately about the subject of abortion for now. Um, however, I'm sure some of what we've said maybe has brought up questions for some of you. Um, please feel free to send those into our Instagram, fast.faith, DM us. Happy to keep talking about it. And that's, that's my doorbell. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. Bye.